Hi everyone, you will be excited to know that Claire is back. Today she and I are discussing James Agee's nonfiction book called Let Us Now Praise Famous Men. And at the very end of our conversation, you can hear a rare reading and writing podcast blooper. I'd like to introduce this discussion with this quote from Let Us Now Praise Famous Men. This is near the beginning of the book. James Agee writes this, For in the immediate world, everything is to be discerned for him who can discern it, and centrally and simply, without either dissection into science or digestion into art, but with the whole consciousness, seeking to perceive it as it stands, so that the aspect of a street in sunlight can roar in the heart of itself as a symphony, perhaps as no symphony can. And all of consciousness is shifted from the imagined, the revisive, to the effort to perceive simply the cruel radiance of what is. I'm choosing this as the quote of the day because I think it's a great description of A.G.'s style and tone throughout, and also because there's a moment in our conversation where Claire tries to remember this phrase, the cruel radiance of what is. So when we get there, you can have it in your mind and insert it into the conversation. Anyway, Claire and I really enjoyed this. We recorded this several days ago, and we haven't really been able to stop talking about the book since. So I hope you enjoy it. Mind blown, okay? Ready? The only wisdom we can hope to acquire is the wisdom of humility. Humility is endless. I know. He says that? He does that. What do you mean? He says it over and over and over. I am not worthy to do this. This oh, is totally bizarre that I'm doing this. If only they could understand how unworthy I feel to be. Okay, well, you've already started. We have to start for real now. <laughs> Welcome back. <laughs> so where have we been? You want to tell the, tell the good folk listening where, where we've been? <laughs> where? Why the long hi- hiatus? We just had our own reading projects for a while. <laughs> Couldn't get ourselves to read the same thing at the same time. We've been reading way different things than you, and sometimes I get it. I need reading breaks, which you don't. What have you been reading? Oh, I've been reading a lot of biographies. I read a really great biography on the artist Arshila Gorky, which was amazing. And yeah, a bunch of other biographies about musicians and... And... uh, not really any literature lately. So today we're going to talk about Let Us Now Praise Famous Men. How did you end up reading this book now? Whose idea was this? Oh, you know what? It's because I read the autobiography on by uh, Woody Guthrie. Bound for Glory. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> that was extremely good. I actually listened to the audio book read by his son Arlo Guthrie, and he did an amazing job. Anyway, so I was telling you about that, and and then you, yeah, I said I wanted to read more stuff like that, and then you had the idea of uh, digging this book back out, which I've been meaning to read ever since I heard the title, even huh. not even knowing anything about the book. I read the book about four-ish years ago, and it, yeah, it was transformative. And the ti- I think we could have an hour-long conversation just about the title. Mm. And how good it is. No, no. <laughs> is it the best title of any book you've ever heard? It is. I think it is. I can safely say that. Let us now praise famous men. Why are we saying that? What's so good about that? It's such an active title. And it's so... I don't know what to call it. It's so authoritative and inviting and mm-hmm. and intriguing. And the tone... I think sounds very, right? It sounds very friendly, but authoritative. But it's from the Book of Wisdom. Right. And you know what's funny? This part is literally my least favorite part. It's beautiful, but it is my least favorite. He's better than the Bible? Yeah, I guess so. (laughs) I didn't do, I have to admit, I didn't do any research whatsoever regarding this book. I kind of like to do that sometimes to see how well it stands on its own. I mean, I did, I did look up 
the title. And I knew where it came from, but I don't know. Is this is this a pure excerpt? Because I don't yeah, think it is. It is. Yeah. Wow. It's from the Book of Wisdom, which is in the in the Apocrypha, one of these rejected books of the Bible. Let us now praise famous men and our fathers that begat us. The Lord hath wrought great glory by them through His great power from the beginning, such as did bear rule in their kingdoms, men renowned for their power, giving counsel by their understanding and declaring prophecies. Leaders of the people by their counsels and by their knowledge of learning meet for the people, wise and eloquent in their instructions. It's supposedly written by Solomon. So it's it's kind of a, a, a cousin of Ecclesiastes, you know, a book like that. Yeah, I, when it came down to this part, and some there be which have no memorial, who perish as though they had never been, and are become as though they had never been born, and their children after them. Yeah. I thought that was A.G. because it started sounding like him. No, and that's why A.G. chose this, though, because that's what that's what this book is about. Yeah. Noble, divine people who have never been seen or praised. Mm. Why don't you explain? We haven't even said what this book is about. We haven't even said what genre this book oh. is. <laughs> What is this book? <laughs> Let us now praise famous men. Well, all I can say is it's nonfiction. <laughs> it he does not want it to be called art. He doesn't want it to be called literature. He doesn't want it to be called journalism. He has the best description for it in his little preface here. Yeah, the He says this is one of the first things that you read in this book. He says more essentially, he's describing his own book. More essentially, this is an independent inquiry into certain normal predicaments of human divinity. In short, it's a book about very, very, very poor Depression-era tenant farmers in Alabama. Mm -hmm. And just documenting their lives and their sorrows and their poverty. Mm -hmm. If you had to describe the style of this book... <laughs> Uh, what would you say? It's extremely puzzling. Because it's not even so experimental that you could say it's experimental. It's just... An explosion. An explosion of extremely thoughtful and ele elegant... <laughs> what do they call it? Ruminations. <laughs> and... But the thing that stands out the most is the awe for this uh, human divinity that you just read, the pr normal predicaments of human divinity. I'd, I've never, I have really never read a single book or maybe even seen a single movie or any sort of art form that had this much reverence for humans. Yeah, I mean, maybe the Psalms. Maybe certain bits of Shakespeare. The Iliad, I think, has profound reverence for humans. That's true, actually. That's not a bad comparison. But this book is on that level, is it not? It's the intensity and the duration with which he reveres people. <laughs> that's ex that's so well said. It's like the volume is level 14 of his praise of the human species. Mm -hmm. And it's 300 pages of very dense prose. It's the best nonfiction book I've ever read. Yes, by far. Absolutely. Pick just pick a pick a representative passage just to give people a sense of what his style as a writer is. What does he sound like when he describes something? If I could do it, I would do no writing at all here. It would be photographs. The rest would be fragments of cloths, bits of cotton, lumps of earth, records of speech pieces of wood and iron, vials of odors, plates of food and of excrement. Booksellers would consider it quite a novelty. <laughs> Critics would murmur, yes, but is it art? And I could trust a majority of you to use it as you would parlor game. It, it's in this little introduction. It, it does give us a sense of his yearning for something beyond language and transcendent and of this earth and... I don't know. Yeah, he wants... He wants to bury himself in the yeah. concrete, in the... In their lives. Yeah. <clears throat> and it's interesting because there are photographs in the book. It would be photographs, right? In the beginning of this book, there's all these gorgeous photographs of some of these tenant farmers and, and their houses and the town. 
So why didn't they leave it at that? He clearly did not actually mean that. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I think I think he finds and creates great pleasure, sublime pleasure, in trying over and over and over again to make sense of the beauty and the dread that he that he witnesses with these tenant farmers. Yeah, he tries and he fails, but it's the trying and the failing that's the success. Mm. Yeah. Because he keeps proving that the attempts that mean that, that all of this is extremely worthy subject matter. Yeah. 400, at least 400 pages worth of attempts worthy. This is a great description of what it feels like to read this book. And it's actually a description, it's actually a paragraph I share with my students a lot because I think it's a great, I love it as an approach to poetry, specifically poetry as a genre that we come to with certain misapprehensions, misunderstandings about interpreting it or analyzing it. So I'll read this and then wouldn't you agree that this is exactly what it feels like to read this book? Mm -hmm. He says, get a radio or a phonograph capable of the most extreme loudness possible and sit down to listen to a performance of Beethoven's Seventh Symphony or of Schubert's C Major Symphony. But I don't mean just sit down and listen. I mean, I mean this. Turn it on as loud as you can get it. Then get down onto the floor and jam your ear as close into the loudspeaker as you can get it and stay there, breathing as lightly as possible and not moving, and neither eating nor smoking nor drinking. Concentrate everything you can into your hearing and into your body. You won't hear it nicely. If it hurts you, be glad of it. As near as you will ever get, you are inside the magic. Not only inside it, you are it. Your body is no longer your shape and substance. It is the shape and substance of the music. This book is like a torrent, isn't it? Like a torrent that he wants to just surround you with? Yeah, it's extreme immersion into one focus on whatever that, you know, whatever the subject is. It's... uh noticing every single thing about it not just its actual physical presence but every single feeling and memory and every single thing it evokes mm. i think that's one of the reasons why this is not just a book of photography we need him to show us everything that these physical things evoke in him you know what i mean I do. We want to be shown everything. And he does. He, <laughs> it, yeah, it feels like a stream of consciousness exercise. That sounds like it's it's not just an exercise, but it's more like a mission. <laughs> Take a, read a few favorite little descriptions or snippets. Descriptions of overalls or... Oh, well, this is a good example. There, there's some passages that get slower than others. They're not as sublime, maybe. I don't deal with all the gr you know, grand issues, but even when he's talking about the houses and the rooms and the objects, the very unimportant objects in the rooms, it's so beautiful and, in fact, reminded me a lot of Tarkovsky, the way he treats the same sort yeah. of objects. Yeah, yeah, that's, I hadn't thought of that, but you're totally right. That's really yeah. great because in Tarkovsky's movies, you'll just get 30-minute, <laughs> maybe not 30-minute, 10-minute sequences of him just panning over random stuff almost junk yeah like the mirror yeah. that movie just the detritus in a river or mm -hmm. as if every little scrap or fragment or shard or object is worth lingering on with a loving camera lens for mm -hmm. ages and ages and ages yep and he'll describe the clothes of these farmers in the most beautiful ways um for example about the shirts, he says, and they're blue. And <laughs> so he says, and into a region and scale of blues, subtle, delicious, and deft beyond what I have ever seen elsewhere approached, except in rare skies, the smoky light some days are filmed with, and some of the blues of Cezanne. One could watch and touch even one such garment, study it with the eyes, the fingers, and the subtlest lips, almost illimitably long, and never fully learn it. And I saw no two which did not hold some world of exquisiteness of its own. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a joke. It's I a complete know. joke. But did you see all the senses he's using? Eyes, fingers. He's using his lips. Yeah. 
It's insane. These old, they're almost rags, what these farmers are wearing. And he says Mm -hmm. that they each held some world of exquisiteness of their own. Mm -hmm. It's just like he's, he is, (laughs) everything is a miracle. He reminds us that everything is a miracle. I know. Listen to this. The shoulders, still speaking of the shirts, the shoulders are that full net of sewn snowflakes of which I spoke. Yeah. The buttons are blind as cataracts and slip their soft holes. (laughs) It's so beautiful because it's like, oh, I guess I could have been viewing the world that way. You know, Wings of Desire, that angel falls to earth and he's just... He's stunned. He's almost catatonic with the beauty of what the rest of us take for granted and walk past blindly every day. Yeah, and he's just in uh, Berlin. Everything is a miracle. Everything is the face of God. Hmm. I I love this, too, because I totally know what he means. There's great pleasure in a sockless and sweated foot in the fitted leathers of a shoe. (laughs) Hmm. Have you noticed also that a lot of the things in here are especially pleasurable to him because they're also a little bit ugly or gross? I'm not saying they, those people are gross, but... No, but everything is in the process of decay. All the houses are falling apart. All the clothes are threadbare. Mm -hmm. And he's praising, if they weren't ephemeral, they wouldn't be beautiful. Everything is... In the process of wilting. He quotes Blake at the end. I want to get to that bit at the end. But Blake has this wonderful little saying, eternity is in love with the objects of time. No, eternity is in love with the productions of time. Hmm. It's like God God himself wants not timelessness, but time. Uh, Finite objects. Hmm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But... As rom- romantic as he gets about these sorts of details, he I think he also he's completely in love with the wholeness of everything, right? The the yin and the yang. <laughs> this is this is not all praise. Well, I, yeah, I wanted to ask you about that because he's extremely angry. He, exactly. I mean, he begins the book with this amazing cast of characters. It's like a, a Greek tragedy. He has this cast of characters, literally. What's it called? Persons and Places. And it looks just like in a Shakespeare play. He'll list all of the people and then describe who they are, the son of this person, the wife of this person. Mm-hmm. And then there's in this cast of characters, we have these people. William Blake, Jesus Christ, Sigmund Freud, others. And they are listed as unpaid agitators. And he quotes... Yeah, there's a lot of sarcasm in this book. And he quotes he, he quotes Karl Marx. Do you remember where that bit is, where he quotes Marx? Mm. Well, one of the epigraphs, there's like a thousand epigraphs in this book. <laughs> Workers of the world unite and fight. You have nothing to lose but your chains and a world to win. That's one of the epigraphs. Then there's a little asterisk. And if you go down, what he has added to this quote by Marx is this explanation. This is A.G. talking. These words are quoted here to mislead those who will be misled by them. They mean not what the reader may care to think they mean, but what they say. They are not dealt with directly in this volume, but it is essential that they be used here. For in the pattern of the work as a whole, they are, in the sonata form, the second theme. It may be well to make the explicit statement that neither these words nor the authors are the property of any political party, faith, or faction. So there's a kind of politics that enters this book. He's extremely mad at the forces that have led to these people's degradation. Yeah. There is it isn't there an element it's not just all like he's not high on beauty and joy. There's a lot of rage. Is there not? A kind of dark energy. Oh yeah. But it is This isn't. is not ignorance. He's not just uh Yeah, he he knows how these tenant farmers came to be <laughs> so unlucky, right? And he wants to make a change. How do you think it the book escapes the pitfall of becoming just propaganda. It's so, so, so much more than that. It's not, it's not even close to that. I think the reason this book isn't preachy is because he's showing us rather than telling us what's wrong, right? And what's beautiful. <laughs> do, you, do you know what I'm trying to say? I mean, he is telling us. <laughs> he's telling us a lot of things. <laughs> what? But 
Yeah, showing and not telling, that's certainly true. But it's not even showing in order to persuade or to argue it. No, that's true. I think it's like what he says about the main purpose of this book is to document human divinity. It's not to change people's minds. It's not to solve problems of poverty. Yeah. It's not to make himself look, oh, look at how sensitive I am for noticing how people suffer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in the beginning he says, Who are you who will read these words and study these photographs? And through what cause, by what chance, and for what purpose? And by what right do you qualify to? And what will you do about it? And the question, why we make this book and set it at large, and by what right, and for what purpose, and to what good end, or none? I think in the beginning he makes it clear that he he doesn't have the answers yet. He's trying to figure it out with us. Right. Yeah, that's important. I agree. He's not an authority here, and he's just taking us along and saying, how are we going to make sense of? Yeah, read that bit. That's what he says. Yeah. Therefore, it is in some fear that I approach those matters at all, and in much confusion. And if there are questions in my mind how to undertake this communication, and there are many, I must let the least of them be whether I am boring you or whether I am taking too long getting started, (laughs) and too clumsily. If I bore you, that is that. If I'm clumsy, that may indicate partly the difficulty of my subject and the seriousness with which I'm trying to take what hold I can of it. Yeah. I think he he's very humble. It's it's a st- such a strange mix of humility and ambition. Could could you imagine a more ambitious book? Could you imagine a more ambitious author? I mean, yeah. like, there's Dante, I guess, but you know what I mean? Mhm. And yet he's constantly saying, I don't know if I can do it. I don't know if I can do it. Mm-hmm. And even he feels so deeply ashamed he does. around these tenant farmers. There's a, there's a beautiful, <laughs> just a beautiful um, part when he's uh, forced to knock late at night when they've already gone to bed at the door of one of these families because there's a storm. Or the roads are muddy and he can't get home. So he has to ask him if he can stay. And he's so ashamed to get them out of bed. And you know, then he's also really hungry. And the, the wife gets up and makes him dinner. And he you know, doesn't want her to trouble with all of that. But then he also doesn't want her to feel like he thinks the food's not good enough for him. Right. So he's aware of all these very like subtle nuances in the way he's interacting with them, very careful not to hurt their feelings or their their pride and not to condescend, not to patronize. Yeah. He's always just, yeah, I find all of that humility and shame very believable and genuine. In Yeah, in the cast of characters, he is listed. He lists himself, James Agee, as, quote, a spy traveling as a journalist. And then his friend, the photographer, Walker Evans, a counter-spy traveling as a photographer. So yeah. I feel like there's so many writers who have political subject matter that would never describe themselves this way. Like, I, I'm doing something slightly wrong here. I shouldn't be here. Yeah. Know, they're, not, they're not self-critical enough. He's so, self, he's so wonderfully self-critical. As anyone should be. Yeah. Coming into other people's lives in order to write about them. <laughs> And he he does keep saying in the beginning how very, just how absurd it all is that he finds himself in the situation where he's prying into somebody else's life. Yeah. And that's very refreshing to hear from somebody who writes nonfiction, honestly. <laughs> There's this, so it's kind of experimental in style. There's what he calls an intermission. And the subtitle is Conversation in the Lobby. And he lists this um, set of questions that he got in 1939 from the Partisan Review. Questions like, are you conscious in your own writing of the existence of a, a usable past? Or have you, found, have you found it possible to make a living by writing the sort of thing that you want to do? Or do you find in retrospect that your writing reveals any allegiance to any group or class? And he basically excoriates these questions. He has no patience for them. For example, question one, his answer is a usable past? Question mark. Beethoven used the past, but do you think he ever sat down to wonder what am I using? What is useful? All of the past one finds useful is usable because it is of the present and because both present and past are essentially irrelevant to the whole manner of use. 
And he says, what do you mean, audience? No decent writer can possibly be interested in the question. Anyway, so he's... Always writing about writing. Not always, but a lot. Yeah, he's very worried about the state of the art. Mm-hmm. I really like this. This is a, another good example of how he uh, uses sarcasm, but not in, a, in an excessively angry sort of way that is hostile to the reader, but more, yeah, it's a gentle sarcasm. <laughs> Anticlimax, which you must understand, is just not is just not quite nice. It happens in life, of course, over and over again. In fact, there's no such thing as a lack of it, you know, compared to art. Um, but art, as all of you would understand, if you had any, if you had my advantages, has nothing to do with life or no more to do with it than is thoroughly convenient at a given time. However, this is just one of several reasons why I don't care for art, and I shan't much bother, I'm afraid. There was an anticlimax. Yeah, he's talking about life. There's anticlimaxes in life. And it, yeah, in these families' lives. Yeah. They're one big anticlimax. Yeah. And so I, I, I love that. It's not quite nice. It happens in life. <laughs> over and over. There's no lack of it. <laughs> yeah. Reminding us that it's the last thing he wants to make out of these people's lives is yeah. art. Yeah. And he, he uses music metaphors all the time. And they're gorgeous, but um, it's acknowledging that in that in the whole lives of these people, there's the music doesn't build up to some sort of great mm -hmm. climax. Mm -hmm. Here we like go. Saying the worst things. This is no, you're not. This is one of my favorite bits. We'll read 200, this. Two hundred. That's what I said. <laughs> that's creepy. <laughs> we'll read this bit and the foxes in the very end. This is this is one of the good better pages, but there are pages like this all over the place, wouldn't you say? There are no bad parts, no. He says, this lucky... <laughs> so he's just describing what it feels like to have a moment of joy. This lucky situation of joy, this at least illusion of personal wholeness or integrity can overcome one suddenly by any one of any number of unpredictable chances. Colon. The fracture of sunlight on the facade and traffic of a street. The sleeving up of chimney smoke. The rich lifting of the voice of a train along the darkness, the memory of a phrase of an inspired trumpet, the odor of scorched cloth, of a car's exhaust, of a girl, of pork, of beeswax on hot iron, of young leaves, of peanuts, the look of a toy fire engine, or of a hundred agates sacked in red cheesecloth, the oily sliding sound as a pump gun is broken, the look of a child's underwaist with its bone buttons loose on little cotton straps, the stiffening of snow in a wool glove, the odor of kitchen soap, of baby soap, of scorched belly bands, the flexion of a hand, the twist of a knee, the modulations in a thigh as someone gets out of a chair. <laughs> I mean, can you believe this? Mm -hmm. The modulations in a thigh as someone gets out of a chair? Yeah, that's my favorite. This is the cause of unexplainable joy? The bending of a speeding car around a graded curve, the swollen, blemished feeling of the mouth and the tenacity and thickness of odor of an unfamiliar powder, walking sleepless in high industrial daybreak and needing coffee. The stench of ferns trapped in the hot sunlight of a bay window. The taste of a mountain summer night, the swaying and shuffling beneath the body of a benighted train, the mold and branny earth beneath the feet in fall. The memory of plain song or of the first half hour after receiving a childhood absolution. The sudden realization of a light year in literal physical terms. It goes on and on and on. Mm -hmm. It's just unbelievable the things that he reminds us exist and that are miracles and that we should see and savor and hold. It's mm. like... And they're also mundane, and they're also domestic, and they're also common. Mm -hmm. We don't have to go out in search of great transcendent experiences, or just like just we no could just smell the ferns in the sunroom, or notice the way your thigh feels when you get up out of a chair. Mm -hmm. It's astounding. I know it's it's really interesting. He writes so much about other things too. Instead of just descriptions oh, of he goes, the farmers. He goes everywhere. He goes everywhere. It's a beautiful example of how to be present in the world, but, and that sounds trite, but, but he, 
in a way, yes. isn't present in the moment because he's present in all the moments. Doesn't it seem that way? It seems kind of godlike. I mean, he's in Alabama, but also everywhere in the universe. What's the city? What's the light years? I know. Can you be present in all the moments at once? <laughs> I mean, I his heart it, must have been exploding every second of the day. I think a book like this reminds us that it is possible. I mean, I suppose he does call it a, a lucky situation of joy. And well, that's true in a way. We can we can't practice being mindful in the moment, you know? We can't be practice being in the moment and noticing everything about it, but I like that he calls it a lucky situation because there's so much that comes to us like grace, you know? Absolutely. Un unrequested, unexpected. Undeserved. Undeserved, yeah. And I love those moments, and I've always tried to make sense of them. But I guess if you're often trying to be mindful, then these kinds of situations would happen much more easily. You would get lucky more often. <laughs> well, look at the things that he lists. Yeah. But it's the awareness that's lucky of them. Yeah. We, Not the objects, we right? Can, we can increase our luck. Yeah. Maybe it's the same as uh, you know Picasso's quote, inspiration exists, but it has to find you working. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Luck you, exists, but it has to find you working. It has to find you... Looking for it. Looking. If you look at the world and see decay and sadness and meaninglessness and pointlessness, you will you will see those things because they they are there. I mean, it's all that he should have been seeing. I know, but in if Alabama. You, but if you look at the world expecting to see miracles, I don't like this word miracles, it sounds trite. If you look at the world expecting to see divinity, human divinity, the the divinity of objects, if you look at the world expecting to see divinity, you will see it. Mm -hmm. You will see it in the bending of a speeding car around a graded curve. Or in the oily sliding sound as a pump gun is broken. Mm. Or the smell of a car's exhaust. There are so many of those things on that list that could be on a list of bad things. Do you know what I mean? I do. Of things people hate. <laughs> I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in fact, I think he goes out of his way to choose such images. I think they're genuine, his feelings for them. But I think he does go out of his way to choose particularly annoying or or ugly or even disgusting things. He describes sleeping at um, the rickets. I think it's the rickets. He describes the bed bugs. They're just all over him. They're biting him. He's trying to cover parts of his body. He tries to cover his face, his hands, and feet, but they just keep getting in. And he says, even in this, there was a particular kind of pleasure. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. And that didn't seem contrived or like he was trying too hard. I think he really has a gift for really seeing seeing the beauty in everything. Well, he, uh, it's one of the most spiritual books I've ever read in that sense, because everything is divine. Everything is the face of God. You'll be turning the pages in this book, and there'll be like kind of a mostly blank page that has a little tiny poem or some verses on it. Mm -hmm. They're not really explained or or. or the provenance of these verses is never given, so we're never sure if they're from the Book of Wisdom or somewhere else or if they're A.G.'s own writing. But here's one in front of me now, and it says things like, For I will go unto the altar of God, even unto the God of my joy and gladness, and upon the harp will I give thanks unto thee, O God, my God. His, his mission in life seems to just be rapturous praise for what is. Yes. If you set out to write a book, and if you were angry about how tenant farmers are treated and neglected would you be worried about making it seem like everything's okay by seeing so much beauty in it all i think i would be yeah right yeah so what can we say about that because that's not what that is well doesn't that happened. worry come through he's worried don't call this art don't call this art it's it's religion it's it's theology it's not not even those words are accurate for it I've always been worried that if you accept the dark and the light, that comes with a certain kind of um, um, acceptance of things and 
and therefore not wanting or needing to change things. I know what you mean. But I, I don't feel like that's the effect of this book, even though he does praise everything. I know I've thought a lot about the exact paradox that you describe as kind of, in my mind, Ulysses has one half this poem by Tennyson, we have to strive, seek, find, and not yield. Mm -hmm. There are things in the world we want to change, and we should try to change them. Mm -hmm. But then we read the Tao Te Ching, and we, we read things like, those who never strive always succeed. Yeah. And we read, I love this bit in Emerson's Self-Reliance. Prayer is the contemplation of the facts of life seen from the highest point of view. It is the, what does he say? It is the contemplation of the facts of life seen from the highest point of view. It is the, it is the expression of a rejoicing and jubilant soul. It is the expression of God looking on his works and pronouncing them good. So... It's true that we should take steps, certain practical, local-level steps to improve situations, but I also think that a healthy life requires the ability to say yes to everything that's happening from the highest point of view. Hmm. Do you know what I mean? And yeah. say that it's good. I'll take all of it. I'll take all of it as it is. You know what I mean, though? That's what I think... You know, in Christianity, that's what thy will be done means, I think. That we surrender what we want to what the, un to what the universe is offering us. <laughs> trusting that the universe is a kind of... Trusting that we are parts of some kind of whole. I don't know. I think I'm remembering this correctly. Um, Thomas Hardy believed, I think that you could change somehow the... I don't think he believed in God per se, but I, I think he believed in the will of the universe. I think he yeah. he thought with his literature, if he portrayed people honestly and with all the injustices that they um, suffer, that the will somehow would be changed of all existence. And mm. I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I should look into that again, but... I feel like some of the greatest some of the greatest art that is that portrays things in their true dark and light in the whole human experience and not just, you know, the more noble <laughs> aspects of it. I think um that strangely is for me at least some of the most life-changing art like with this book. Humans are more divine and therefore my heart's quite literally changed by this book. I love humans more. And that is more powerful. And I think it's more powerful for a writer to instill love for humans and life and <laughs> all of existence in the reader than to just tell the reader what's wrong yeah. and how to change it. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's not, it doesn't work. Yeah. That's. I think that's why the last psalm is the last psalm. Praise him with psalter and harp. Praise him with tingling instruments. Praise him with drums and, you know what I mean? Praise him. Let everything that hath breath praise the Lord. Praise ye the Lord. That's the last psalm because I I think it concludes that sequence of poems with what you just said. That That's the purpose of any art, any musical instrument. That's why they're invented, to praise. Mm-hmm to praise existence, to praise being, to praise the universe, to praise God. It doesn't matter what word you use to describe this, but yes, there are problems. Read the Psalms. They're, they're full of suffering. They're not ignorant to the suffering of the world. And yet, right, they, but they, and yet they conclude with what you just said. It, it Ultimately, our job is to praise. Right, because you won't care about those injustices if you don't find the people suffering praiseworthy or that's divine. Exactly, yeah, that's exactly right. you got to read these foxes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. For some reason, I didn't remember them from my reading of this book, but I just couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe what A.G. is capable of. Yeah, the book ends with the most beautiful, one of the most beautiful images that I've ever come across in any book. So they're on the porch, um, James and the photographer. From these woods, a good way out along the hill, there now came a sound that was new to us. 
All the darkness and near range of the earth, as far as we were able to hear, was strung with noises that were all one noise, and to this we had become so accustomed that this, that this new sound came out of silence and left an even more powerful silence behind it. He goes on, It was perhaps most nearly like the noise hydrogen makes when a match flame is passed across the mouth of a slanted test tube. <laughs> it was about the same height as this sound, soprano with a strong alto illusion. It was colder than this sound, though, as cold and as chilling as the pupil of a goat's eye. I mean, it's so good that I'm angry, not out of jealousy, but just like, I, I can't, it's not anger, it, exasper, I'm exasperated. I know. I can't believe it's that good. <laughs> I know. <laughs> or a low note on the clarinet. And then uh, finally yeah, they... And it just gets better. It hasn't even really started yet. I know. And finally they they think that maybe they're foxes. Um, and he says, And it was with the breaking open of this voice that we too broke open silently. Our whole bodies broke open into a laughter that destroyed and restored us more than the most absolute weeping ever can. This is a laughter I have experienced only rarely, listening to the genius of Mozart, at its angriest and cleanest, most masculine fire, the sudden memory of some line of Shakespeare, Nymph, in thine horizons be all my sins remembered, walking in streets or driving in country. Um, in the sound of these foxes, if they were foxes, there was nearly as much joy and less grief. This calling continued, never repeating a pattern, and always with what seemed infallible art, for perhaps twenty minutes, it was thoroughly as if principles had been set up and chanted and left like dim sacks at one side of a stage, as enormous as the steadfast tilted deck of the earth, and as if onto this stage, accompanied by the drizzling confabulation of nocturnal pastoral music, two masked characters, unforetold and perfectly irrelevant to the action, had with cat-like aplomb and noiselessness stepped and had sung, with sinister casualness, what at length turned out to have been the most significant but most unfathomable number in the show, and had then in perfect irony and silence withdrawn. <laughs> Don't know what to say after that. I know. The frightening joy of hearing the world talk to itself. It's, it's beyond words. I mean, and I know exactly what he's talking about. I haven't heard foxes like that, but, you know, sometimes when you're out in nature and you hear, yeah, you hear animals in some way communicating, it feels just like that. But we didn't know that it felt like that until we read this. I know. <laughs> Sinister casualness. I know. What <laughs> the, the phrases. That is the craziest it's adjective. The most absurd. Okay, I have one more question for you, and I want to read one more tiny little bit. Why does nobody read this book? Nobody talks about this book. Nobody reads it. No. Why? I don't know. I have no idea. I would say it's, uh, I mean, it's a difficult read in some ways, right? It's not. Well, it's definitely, it's not more difficult than Joyce or Wolf or Faulkner or exactly. Kafka. Exactly. It's not more difficult, so that's not the reason. I have no idea. I've become its missionary. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Spreading it. I posted a quote from it on Instagram, and there was one, one very, very, very happy guy <laughs> who came out of the, out of the shadows. <laughs> As an AG fan. <laughs> yes. And he had written his PhD dissertation on it, so he was extremely happy. And this was years ago. He was extremely happy to have somebody mention aging because it never happens. I know, it's crazy. Apparently. Even the Wikipedia page is tiny for it. So I just want to end with this bit. It's There's like three beginnings of this book, but there's also like three ends. You know what I mean? Mm hmm. <laughs> what's, what's going on with this page? Oh, I did not. <laughs> uh, note, other Anglo-Saxon monosyllables are God, love, loyalty, honor, beauty, duty, integrity, art, artist, religion, truth, science. It goes on and on and on for two, three, four pages. It's just a list. And then there's this little section five. A weird made up. Uh, well, some of these are he steals from Blake. He doesn't tell us he's stealing these from Blake. The tigers of wrath are wiser than the horses of instruction. That's from the marriage of heaven and hell. Mm. The road of excess leads to the palace of wisdom. So is that. Oh, that, I love that quote because I immediately thought of his writing. 
of his writing approach. It's, Using it's, excess with the hopes of arriving at wisdom, right? It is Blakean. Definitely Blakean. If the fool would persist in his folly, he would become wise. That's Blake, too. This whole thing is probably Blake. And that sounds like Ajit's writing, too. I mean, his writing style. It absolutely does. It's kind of like... he persists in um, describing these things over and over and over. Rapturous, ecstatic, mystical, transcendent, bodily. Yeah. Maybe he's Blake reincarnated. But seriously, if you, maybe he's saying like... Well, he's not just saying it. He's showing us. If you describe a thing long enough, if you look at a thing long enough, you become wise. Something happens. You learn something. Right? Totally. And it seemed like he was completely surprised by all the things he kept learning, right? I mean, every one of these little aphorisms that he takes from Blake is a description of this book. Mm -hmm. Everything possible to believed, everything possible to be believed is an image of truth. Mm -hmm. One thought fills immensity. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. And then this last one, which is like, I want this tattooed somewhere on me. Everything that is, is holy. Mm-hmm. On your butt. <laughs> I was trying to go for the reference crescendo. But sure. End with a joke, why don't you? He's full of jokes. That's true. That's true. Last words. Read read this book. Will well, you be will you be rereading it? I will, yeah. I will return very, very often to some of these huge chunks of sections that I bracketed. Yeah, it's kind of a cool book in that you don't necessarily have to read it cover to cover. I mean, you absolutely should, but it's a kind of extended prose poem. Mm -hmm. It has no plot. It's nonfiction. It's um, every page will, will make you cry. <laughs> oh, yeah. I... I feel like I always say this in every podcast, but I guess it's because we choose extremely good books. We do, don't we? Well, you know, I think the last thing was it the Divine Comedy. I think it was. So you know, maybe that's why we took such a long break because we just needed to recuperate, <laughs> recuperate from the rapturous union with transcendence that is Dante. Honestly, that probably is what happened because that was intense, and talking about it is so in many ways gratifying, but also very frustrating. I know. What can be said I mean, so I true. I we couldn't say a single thing about this book in a podcast that would come close to the miracle that it is. <laughs> Not even close. I just know that what I take, the biggest thing I'll take from it is to let myself rapturously experience the world in its wholeness and not just for the parts I like. Everything that is, is holy. Yeah. That doesn't mean everything that is, is good. That's correct. That's, 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 that's a, yeah, exactly. But it exists, and what exists, what, what is that? What is that quote I'm thinking of now? Is it Wallace Stevens? Anyway. We well, what is it? Describe it. It sounded good. It sounded juicy. <sighs> yeah, it was something about, it was good. Insert genius quote here. <laughs> we have to make the readers do some, the listeners do some work. True. We want to semi-commit to any future books for this podcast. What, what might we, emphasis on the might, be reading next? I honestly think we should read the four quartets next because I read that right after reading. Let us now praise fame's men. And it's a cousin to yeah. that book, for sure. There are so many interesting parallels. and Yeah. Antigone was also mentioned. Oh, right. Yeah. Down, down the road. Mm -hmm. Speaking of Greek tragedy. And maybe the, I don't know, maybe that's too much AG, but we could try the letters to father. Could there be friend. such a thing as too much AG? Yeah, probably not. <laughs> I love all those farmers. I love them a lot. Divinity. Human divinity. Yeah. What a gift for a writer to give somebody, huh? Imagine, just imagine approaching anyone in the world, your neighbor that you slightly don't like, or a person that you love, or a person that you really hate, and 
flooding them with your attention. You, yes. you might not like them at the end of this exercise, but you would certainly love them. Excess would lead to wisdom. You yeah. might, yeah, by excessively paying attention, <laughs> you might, yeah, find wisdom. You might find that they are divine, even mm -hmm. if they're horrible, even if they act horribly. Mm -hmm. Everything that is is holy, not necessarily good. I know. I'll say one more thing. <laughs> we, <laughs> We're circling back a little. We can't to shut the, up about this book. <laughs> I know. Well. One thing I love so much is that he doesn't say, look at these poor people. You know what I mean? He not, doesn't... Not a single time does he ever do that. There's no pity. We don't love them because we pity them. There's no. no pity in this entire book. Sadness for their... Rage. For their suffering, yes, and rage. But no, it's... Yeah. It's only ever admiration, which is really amazing. It's quite an achievement. But it's, it's not, it's not it, that the admiration doesn't take the form of flattery. No. It's mostly just objective description. I, I know. I saw this, and then I saw that, and then I saw that, and then I saw that. And actually, I read that David Simon, one of the guys who made The Wire, was inspired by A.G. when he made The Wire. Yeah, they're and twins. I see that. They're twins, for sure. I see that. If you look at those uh, characters in that show, I've we've always said that when we watch the show, it, that everyone has dignity. Everyone. I mean, Omar is full of dignity. <laughs> yeah. And all those kids, all those uh, wild kids that basically are growing up on the streets, they're they're beautiful. Yeah. And not in a contrived way, just in a, I looked at them and then I saw they were beautiful. <laughs> That's so true. So let's... And they're not condescended to, to be made beautiful. You know what I mean? It's, it's like the camera, AG's pen has no agenda. Exactly. Yeah, yeah that's, that's good. Agendas are bad. There was the frightening joy of hearing the world talk to itself and the grief of incommunicability. <laughs> and the <laughs> That's a hard one. <laughs> incommunicability. <laughs> the world talked to itself and the grief of <laughs> The grief of incommunicability. <laughs> you did it. <sighs> anyway, um 